Well, howdy. Hey, it's uh, great to be back at Community of Faith for a second week in a row. I always love getting to be here. If this is our first time together, let me just introduce myself. My name is Timothy Atik. I'm the executive director of Breakaway Ministries in College Station. Uh, great to see you uh, today. Ladies, I want to start just by telling you what happens when guys get out of the city and into the country and around a, a fire. When guys get around a fire, they become one of three types of men. The first type of guy is the sit back and relax guy. And that guy basically takes his chair, plants it down in one place in front of the fire, and then sits down and never moves from that place for the entire evening. And if the fire begins to dwindle, he begins to look around to see if anyone's going to do something about it. And if nobody's moving to do something about it, he just assumes that the night's over and he calls it a night. The second type of guy that we can become is the lighter fluid guy. I don't know what it is, but whenever a bottle of lighter fluid gets introduced into the mix with a group of men, it awakens this dormant pyrogene. And so the same reaction happens with a group of middle schoolers and a group of middle-aged men. The bottle gets passed around and you, you enter into this rhythm of spray, giggle, spray, giggle. Always happens. The third type of guy that we can become is the good fire guy. It's the cultivator. This is the guy who loves a good fire. So. He will just disappear into the woods and into the night for like 20 minutes. And then he'll reemerge dragging a tree and all types of kindling. And that guy will spend all evening just cultivating the fire. He'll get down on his knees and get eye level with it and blow into the fire and arrange kindling and different logs in just the right way to get the maximum effect of the fire. So there's the sit back and relax guy, there's the lighter fluid guy, and there's the good fire guy. And the reason that I even bring this up is that I believe that a fire is a really great picture of the Christian life. There are going to be times where your walk with Jesus is a raging fire, and then there's times where it's going to be really weak, and you're going to struggle to see if there's really anything going on. A fire is a really good picture of the, the Christian walk, the, the journey with Jesus. And you need to know, as you walk through this life with Jesus, you're going to become one of three types of people as you get around the fire of your faith. You might be the sit back and relax Christian, the person who desires a great enjoyable, warm fire with Jesus. You just don't want to do the work that it takes to really get there. And so you'll have good intentions and you'll have the desire. You'll just never get where you want to go because you refuse to put out the effort needed to really get there. You might become the lighter fluid Christian. You're event driven and so you'll come to church on Sunday morning and it'll douse the fire of your faith and the fire of your faith will kind of flare up and then for the rest of the week the fire of your faith will just kind of dwindle down or maybe you buy the latest book or you go to a conference or you get the new worship CD and it causes your faith to flare up and then it just kind of dwindles 
down. Or you're going to be the good fire Christian. You're going to be the cultivator. You're going to be the person that really desires that warm, enjoyable fire with Jesus, and you're going to be willing to do the work that it takes to actually get there. And so you're going to have different disciplines in your life. You're going to believe that it's worth it to cultivate the fire of your faith, to have strategies to get where you want to grow. Now, my hope is that as I'm talking, my hope is that you're resonating with the cultivator. Like if you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, I'll be the uh, sit back and relax Christian. You missed it, all right? Clearly, I didn't position it right. The goal is to be the cultivator, the good fire Christian. I think that there's something deep inside of us that we all want to be the cultivator. If I were to sit here and say, man, what if it was possible for you to have this this great, warm, enjoyable relationship with Jesus Christ. Every day you experience joy and peace and adventure. Isn't that something that you would want? Isn't there something deep inside of you that says, yeah, that, that's what I want. That, that's where I want to get. I don't want to just be the, the lighter fluid Christian. I'm kind of tired of just seeing the fire dwindle every week, getting um, distracted by everything else going on in the world. No, I want that. I want to be the good fire Christian. If that's you, then the good news for you this morning is that the greatest piece of kindling for the fire of your faith just might be something that you've had memorized for years. This morning, I'm going to save you a lot of money at the Christian bookstore. You're, going to, you, you're not going to need to go there to get the latest and greatest devotional. I'm going to save you some time kind of looking for the next big Christian thing. If there's something inside of you that is desiring traction with Jesus, if something inside of you is longing for more intimacy than you have been experiencing, then this morning I want to unlock for you what just might be the greatest source of kindling for the fire of your faith. It's something you've already had memorized. It's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then tradition has tacked on, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What you need to know is every single line of the Lord's Prayer holds a key to intimacy with Jesus Christ. So I want to help you this morning get where you want to grow. And I want to do it by looking at the Lord's Prayer. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to it. It's found in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And I think it's very important to See, the wording that Jesus uses to set up the Lord's Prayer. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says this, pray then like this. Notice that Jesus doesn't say pray this. 
He says, pray then like this. What that means is the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer to not teach us what to pray as much as teaching us how to pray. It's interesting because we, we tend to recite the Lord's Prayer a lot, but I don't think it was ever Jesus' intention for us to just recite the Lord's Prayer every day or to recite it before every football game. No, the Lord's Prayer exists to teach us how to pray, not as much what to pray. Jesus is teaching us how to, to encounter the next level of intimacy with God. Because each line of the Lord's Prayer holds a key to intimacy. So let's just unpack this prayer. I mean, we are going to unpack this thing just line for line. Jesus starts and says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Let's just stop there. Jesus says, if you want to experience intimacy with God, then you start by realizing the type of relationship that you have with God as a Christian. You get to pray our Father. He's establishing the relationship. You get to address God as Father. So if God is Father, that makes you son or daughter. You have a familial relationship with God. And you need to know this is only possible because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven and into earth and voluntarily went to the cross and was crucified for your sins and mine, when he endured the wrath of God on our behalf and then walked out of the tomb on the third day, what he was doing was he was purchasing our way into the family of God. Do you realize that? Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is an, it's an invitation into the family of God. If you want to experience intimacy with the God of the universe, then what you need to realize is that the king of heaven doesn't need you, but he wants you. And the way that you know he wants you is just by looking at the cross. Jesus came not just so that we could be a statistic to God, but so that we could be a son or daughter to him. This is the good news of Christianity. But I need to make a clarifying statement. The reason it's so important for us to be talking about this is that there's this misconception in the world that everyone in this world is in one way or another a child of God. And that's just not true. Not everyone in this room and not everyone in this world is a child of God. Everyone in this room is a child of someone or something. And I say that because of what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. I read this last week. I'll read it for you again. He says this in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, what? Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Everyone in here is a child of someone or something. You are either a child of wrath or a child of God. 
Those are the only two options. You are either a child of wrath or a child of God. The great news of Christianity is that you who were a child of wrath become a child of God by the grace of God, expressed through Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, not everyone is a child of God, but those who have received Jesus Christ. I'm not just talking about knowing about Jesus, I'm talking about receiving him, saying, yes, Jesus, you belong in my life, and you don't just have a place in my life, you actually have my life. I actually have life in you. You are my savior, you are my king. Jesus. To all who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. John puts it this way in 1 John 3, 1. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. If you want to experience intimacy with God, just start your morning remembering the relationship you have with him. That the God of the universe looks at you and calls you son or daughter. The king of heaven doesn't need you, but he wants you. And this is, the, this is where it gets so sweet, because if the scriptures are true, then when you begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are, the, the scriptures say you are in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is used a lot. For example, 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you know Jesus, you are in Jesus. The scriptures position it as being hidden in Christ. So what that means is when God sees you, he no longer sees you. He sees his son, Jesus. So just think about it. All of the love, all of the affection, all of the pleasure, all of the delight that God the Father has in God the Son, Jesus Christ, he now has for you as his son or daughter who is in Christ. So just imagine that. When you wake up tomorrow morning, if you want to experience intimacy with God before your feet hit the floor, before you even crack open your Bible or your devotional. Sit there in your bed and just remind yourself, the king of heaven doesn't need me, but he wants me, and he feels the delight, the pleasure, the love, the acceptance, the approval that God the Father has for God the Son, he now has for me. It's maxed out because I am in Christ. Isn't that great news? You're a child of the God of the universe. You want to experience intimacy with God. You want to gain some traction. Then Jesus says, you pray, our Father in heaven. That reminds you of the relationship. But it also reminds you of who God truly is, that he is our Father in heaven. The fact that he is our Father in heaven means that he's a perfect Father. And the reason that it's important to clarify that he's a perfect Father is because Many people in this room have had really bad relationships with their earthly fathers. And the tendency is to, is to project onto God the relationship you've experienced with your earthly dad. What you need to know is God is a perfect father. 
So if you've had a bad earthly father, everything that your earthly father has been God is infinitely not. And if you've had a really great earthly father, then everything that your earthly father has been, God is infinitely more. He's a perfect father. I say this a lot, but one of the most important truths that has ever been shared with me is this. Your view of God determines your response to God. Your view of God determines your response to God. That's how any relationship works. Your view of a person will determine your response to that person. Just watch what happens when any guy gets head over heels for a girl. He'll do anything for her. He'll spend all of his money on her. He'll watch any Nicholas Sparks movie, and it's just sickening. But he will do anything for her. Why? Because his view of her is determining his response to her. But just go be a fly on the wall of any marriage counselor's office. And what are you going to hear? You're going to hear story after story demonstrating one small view after another. See, your view of God will determine your response to God. So if we're talking about traction and intimacy with Jesus Christ this morning, then you need to realize your view of God is going to determine whether you're going to have an exciting, enjoyable, warm fire with God. Jesus says, remember that our God is a perfect father. He's perfect. He's perfect in wisdom. That means he always knows the best thing to do. And here's the great thing. God loves to unleash his wisdom into your life. If you really grabbed a hold of that, don't you think you would start praying more? To the God who has perfect wisdom, who knows exactly what needs to happen in your circumstance right now, he's perfect in power. That means God never lacks the resources he needs to accomplish what is good, pleasing, and perfect in your life. He's perfect in creativity. That means he's incapable of of creating a mediocre existence for your life. He's perfect in attendance. That means he's the only one who is present in your life every single moment of every single day. He's perfect in discipline. That means he loves you too much to get away with dumb things in your life. But he also loves you too much to not ruin you with with just these overly rigid and strict rules. No, he's perfect in discipline. He's perfect in love. He's never insecure. He never does things to manipulate you into loving him. No, he gives his love to you freely and unconditionally. He is our perfect father. When you begin to get your mind and your heart around these things, when you wake up in the morning and you remind yourself, man, God, you're, you're my perfect father. You're with me in the room right now, and you want to give me access to your wisdom and your power. God, you're committed to putting displays of your goodness and greatness. You're committed to putting displays of those things on in my life today. It changes things. It draws you closer to him. God's no longer this distant, abstract substance in the sky that you're supposed to pay your respects to. There's a perfect father that wants intimacy with his children. 
Imagine how that could change things. Imagine how that could stoke the fire of your faith. That's why Jesus tells us to pray, our Father in heaven. And then he goes on and says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's different for us because what, what we believe it should read, we believe it should read, our Father in heaven, give me. Isn't that sometimes how our prayers go? Our Father in heaven, give me this. God, get, help me get more money. God, I need a job. It's our Father in heaven, give me. But Jesus says, you know what? When you really see God for who he is, when you understand that he is our perfect Father in heaven, it begins to change your priorities. And you don't pray, our Father in heaven, give me. You begin to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That word name is an all-encompassing word for a person. It, it, it includes their reputation, their character, and their actions. That word hallowed, I, I don't know if you've used hallowed in a sentence this week. I sure haven't. It doesn't come up in my work. I challenge you to try and use it in your workplace tomorrow and just kind of freak people out. But uh, that word hallowed, it means to be set apart or to be made holy. Right here, it takes on a little bit different of a meaning because God doesn't need to be made holy. He doesn't need to be set apart because he already is set apart. He already is holy. What Jesus is saying is your view of God determines your response to him. And when you see him for who he is, this perfect father who's perfect in power and love and wisdom and delight and forgiveness and grace... When you see him for who he is, it drives this worship in you where you begin to say in your life, God, you are holy, you are set apart. I've seen you for who you are and there is no one else like you in this world. There's no one else like you. And now that I've seen you, it changes my priorities. And I want you to be glorified in my life. And not just that, I want to see you glorified throughout the earth. I want you to get the worship that is rightfully yours. So here's where it drives intimacy. When you begin to see God for who he is, and you begin to say, hallowed be your name, what you're really saying is, God, I've realized some very important truths. Number one, you're God and I'm not. Number two, you're big and I'm small. And number three, you don't exist for me. I exist for you. God, it clarifies my purpose. The reason I exist is to know you, enjoy you, and display you to the rest of the world. So you don't have to go through life wondering what your purpose is. You don't have to wonder anymore if you have a meaningful existence. If you want to know the point and purpose of your life, it's to know Jesus, enjoy Jesus, and display Jesus through the earth. And so when you see God for who he truly is, it clarifies your purpose and you say, hallowed be your name. God, I want you to be glorified in, in my life and through the rest of the world. I love what Pastor Louis Giglio said when he was teaching through the Lord's Prayer. He said, where there is no hallowed, your relationship with God will feel hollow. You want to stoke the fire of your faith? Then Jesus says, here's some keys to intimacy. See God for who he is, our Father in heaven. Know your purpose. Hallowed be your name. 
Let your name and your renown be the desire of my heart, God. He goes on and says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, when you see God for who he is, you begin to really believe that he is great and good at the same time. And so what happens is you begin to invite his leadership into your life. That's what you're praying when you say, your kingdom come, your will be done. What you're saying is, Jesus, you can be king in my life. You can rule in my life. You can call the shots in my life. You can be in charge. Let me explain it this way. When I was in high school, I was in the select choir. Now, I know what you're thinking. Man, T.A., you can sing? Uh, no, I can't. I, I really can't. I got into the choir because of politics. My brother was already in it. The choir director felt bad not letting me in, so that's how I got in. But I was in the select choir, and we went to competition. So I just want you to imagine 90 people in this choir standing on risers on a stage like this. <clears throat> and our choir director, the conductor, started the song, and we began to sing... And uh, I guess those 90 people weren't watching the conductor closely because all 90 people got off tempo, which means 90 different people were singing 90 different words at the exact same time. And it wasn't my fault because I just mouthed the words to the songs. I never made any noise audibly. Okay, so it wasn't on me. But what erupted from that stage was chaos. It was chaos. Why? Because 90 different people didn't follow the conductor. Do you want to know why chaos permeates our world? Do you want to know why that you turn on the news and you see one chaotic event after another? It's because we have a world full of over 7 billion people who have refused to follow God, the conductor. This world is packed full. Every single person in this room, every person in this world has chosen to be their own conductor. Everyone has said, I will be a better conductor than God. And everyone has insisted on singing their own song at their own tempo. And it has caused chaos in this world. When you come to know Jesus and you see God for who he truly is, something changes and you begin to say, God, you're a good conductor. I want to follow you. See, that's what you're praying when you say, your kingdom come, your will be done. You're saying, you can lead my life. You have the right to rule in my life. You want to know how that event finished at that choir concert? As chaos erupted from the stage, our choir director reached this moment where he had had enough, and he made this massive and authoritative motion, stop. And he stopped the song right in the middle of it, and he started it over so that the song could be sung how it was meant to be sung, where everyone was synced up with the conductor. 
See, when you pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you know what you're ultimately praying for? You're ultimately praying for the day that is coming where God will make a massive and authoritative motion stop. He will put an end to all of the chaos in the world, and he will start the song of creation over because he will have made all things new. And the song of creation will be sung as it has been meant to be sung where everyone and everything is in sync with the conductor. See, when you see God for who he truly is, you begin to say, God, I want to see your rule and reign fleshed out in my life and in the rest of this world. May your kingdom permeate the entire earth, because that's where joy is found. That's where peace is found. That's where true life is found when you, God, are the King of kings and Lord of lords, when this world realizes who you already are, the King of everything. Before I move on, let me just say this. If you're at a place in your life where you're resisting God's leadership, You're scared to invite him into certain areas of your life. You are stiff-arming his his lordship and his kingship. You know what has happened? What has happened is that you've bought into a lie that God is a lousy conductor. See, every single one of us has an enemy. There is an enemy in this world that hates you. And it is his aim to destroy you. And the way that he does that is by lying to you. The Proverbs say there's a way that seems right to man that in the end leads to death. So you have an enemy that wants to convince you to do things your way instead of God's way. But in the end, that way leads to death, not life. So if you're in a place right now where you don't want to you, you don't want to stop living with your boyfriend or girlfriend or you don't want to stay in your marriage or you want to cut corners at work or you want to cheat on your taxes. All that has happened is that you've bought into a lie that God is a lousy conductor. And I just want to affirm for you today, God can be trusted. He is good and great. And he is worthy of having the ultimate position of leadership in your life. Jesus says, you want to stoke the fire of your faith, and here it is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we reach this pivot in the prayer, where now it shifts from from God's glory to our needs. And this is really good, because God cares about our needs. And so here's another key to intimacy. Jesus says, pray Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread is referring to our most basic needs. It's what we need most to function in life. Jesus is saying, if you want to experience intimacy with God, then ask God for the things that you need. Just think about that. What do you believe that you need most right now? For most people here, it won't be food. So God isn't just saying, the only thing I care about is food in your life. No, he's saying, I care about your your most basic needs, the things that you need to survive and to live in this life. What do you believe that you need most right now? Whatever that thing is, God cares about it and wants you to talk to him about it. 
For you, maybe it's a job, maybe it's, maybe it's money, maybe it's a spouse. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's physical healing. Here's what I know. Jesus is saying, if you want to experience intimacy, talk to God about it because he cares about it. Now, God might not give you exactly what you want, but his will for your life is good, pleasing, and perfect. If he doesn't give you what you want, he's going to give you what he knows you need most. And ultimately, that thing is what will give you the most joy in life. You need to realize that God has rigged your life to need him. You will need him. If you're stressed out right now, if you're anxious right now, if you're worried right now, if you're not sleeping well right now, do you know what's happening? All of those things are simply just distress signals of your soul that you need God. That's all that stress, anxiety, worry, sleepless nights are. They are distress signals of your soul that you need God. They are the cries of your heart to look upward instead of inward. God has wired you to need him. He's wired you to need to look upward to him for things. So if you want to experience intimacy, then Jesus is saying, man, whatever you need, you look upward instead of inward for it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And then he says, and forgive us our debts. Jesus says, if you want to experience traction in your relationship with God, then there needs to be these times where you ask God for forgiveness. Now, I think it's important to clarify is Jesus calling us to have these different moments all throughout our lives where we ask God for forgiveness so that we will still keep our salvation? I don't think so. What we need to distinguish between is forgiveness. Uh, we need to distinguish between forensic forgiveness and family forgiveness. Forensic forgiveness is a moment in time event where God the judge declares you the guilty defendant not guilty. Not because you're not guilty, but because Jesus Christ has taken all of your guilt upon himself and already paid the punishment that was rightfully yours. That's forensic forgiveness. It's a moment in time event, and it lasts for all of eternity. That's why Paul is able to say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are permanently clean. You are permanently forgiven. And it happens at a moment in time where you make an intentional decision to know Jesus Christ as Savior and King. Family forgiveness is the forgiveness that maintains health and fellowship and intimacy within a family. It's necessary to maintain healthy relationships. That's what Jesus is talking about here. How do I know that? Because he taught us to pray our Father. See, this, the Lord's Prayer isn't for everyone. Not everyone should pray the Lord's Prayer. This prayer is a prayer for those who are within the family of God. And Jesus says, for those who are in the family of God, it's important to have ongoing moments where you ask God for forgiveness. I want you to think about it this way. I have, I have two boys and, and another boy on the way in October, so please pray for us. But um, Noah is seven and Andrew is five. And uh, my boys, 
can make some bad decisions. And I would imagine that there will be plenty of times in the future where they do some things that I find pretty offensive and disappointing. Let me ask you this. Is there ever a time in their life where they will no longer be Atiks? That's my last name. Is there ever a time in their life where they will stop being my kids? Is there ever a time in their lives where I will be like, okay, guys, that's it. That's the last straw. The last name Atik no longer applies to you. You now just have a first name, like Madonna or Prince. You're just now Noah or Andrew. You are no longer Noah Atik or Andrew Atik. No, there's nothing that they could ever do that would cause them to no longer be my children. And the same is true with God. There's nothing you could ever do that would make God sever a relationship with you. But are there things that my kids can do that can cause them to miss out on intimacy and fellowship with me. Absolutely. If my kids grow up and decide to, to say, I'm done with you, Dad, and leave my house, they will miss out on intimacy and fellowship with me. And the same can happen with God. If we choose to rebel against God and live in a way that is contrary to what he has called us to, we will miss out on fellowship and intimacy with him. When we do those things, when my kids make bad choices, what is the right thing for them to do? The right thing is for them to come to me and ask for forgiveness. And when they ask for forgiveness, what does it do? It, it gives me the opportunity to get down on my knees, wrap my arms around them, and affirm my love for them, and forgive them, and it draws us close together. If you want to stoke the fire of your faith, that when you're in the midst of sin, don't run from God, press into Him. Draw near to Him. Ask for forgiveness. And allow Him to wrap His arms around you and affirm His love for you, and it will draw you close to Him. You'll find yourself saying, God, I cannot believe that you still want me despite everything I've done. Thank you, God, for how much you love me. Jesus says, pray. Forgive us our debts. But then he goes on and says, don't just for pray, forgive us our debts, but go on as we also have forgiven our debtors. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, you need to know that there is a direct connection between your relationship with others in your relationship with God. Your relationship with others can actually impact your relationship with God. And this is so important to Jesus that he addresses it right here in verse 12. And then in verse 13, he talks about temptation. And then in verse 14, he comes back to this idea of forgiving other people. Look at what he says. He says in verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is Jesus saying that if you don't forgive other people, then God will no longer save you? I personally don't think that's what he's talking about. Again, I think he's, this is family forgiveness. He's talking to people within the family of God. And what he's saying is, if you don't forgive other people, it will impact intimacy with God. Let me position it this way. If my son Noah refuses to sit at the dinner table because he is mad at his brother Andrew and refuses to forgive his brother Andrew, doesn't that decision inevitably impact his intimacy with me? 
Because by refusing to sit at the table with Andrew, he is actually also choosing to refuse to sit at the table with me. And so Jesus is saying, if you refuse to forgive other people, you need to know God's going to refuse to forgive you. Meaning, God's not going to look at you and say, hey, I know you're refusing to forgive that person. I know you're choosing to walk in unrepentant sin, but we're good. I'm going to act like everything's cool and that we're tied. And when you get up in the morning and we're, you're praying, man, we're just, everything's good and everything's just exactly how it should be. No, What Jesus is saying is God isn't going to act like everything's okay when you walk in unrepentant sin. He can't do that. He can't just turn a blind eye to you refusing to live how he has called you to live. It will disrupt fellowship and intimacy. So you need to know if there's someone in your life that you are refusing to forgive, yet you believe that you are completely connected to God, you've bought into a lie. You've bought into a mirage of life. It is impossible to walk in unrepentant sin and experience deep intimacy with God. Those two things are incongruent. Forgive others. And I promise that as, and you know what? Forgiveness is rarely a feeling. Forgiveness is most often a choice you make despite how you feel. I promise you, you make the choice to forgive. And it will draw you close to God. It will. But when you refuse to forgive, you know what you're saying? You're saying, God, I know that you've forgiven me. And in order to forgive me, you had to step out of heaven and into earth in the person of Jesus Christ. You had to pour out your wrath upon your son. And your son had to beat death in order for me to be forgiven. But what this person has done to me, it's unforgivable. That doesn't make sense. Jesus finishes by saying this, pray this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now this is interesting because it sounds like Jesus is saying that we should pray that God wouldn't tempt us. But if God tempts us, then that contradicts scripture because James 1 tells us that God never tempts us. God will absolutely lead you into situations where temptation exists. That's what I think this is referring to. And the reason I know that is because God led his son Jesus into the wilderness where he was then tempted by the devil for 40 days. You will be led into situations where there will be temptation. Just a hint, it's when you walk out those doors. And so what Jesus is saying, when he says pray and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, what I think he's saying is when I enter situations where there is temptation, God help me not to get too far in that I give in. Now, God, would you allow your resurrecting power to be available and active in my life? Would you fight for me? Would you go to war for me? Would you protect me? Would you show up in a significant way? Would you help me to see the way of escape that you actually promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 and help me to take the way of escape? Fight for me, God. And when you submit your life to him, and you invite his power into your life in the midst of temptation, man, it draws you into intimacy with him. You want to stoke the fire of your faith? You want to experience the warmth of an enjoyable relationship with Jesus Christ? Then here it is. I'm saving you a lot of money at the Christian bookstore. The kindling 
Is it in something you have had memorized for years? The Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'll finish by saying this. You know what? It's really comfortable to be the sit back and relax guy. It's fun sometimes to be the lighter fluid guy. But all of the warmth, all of the intimacy is found in being the good fire guy. It's found in being the cultivator. Does it take work? Absolutely. Is it worth it? No doubt. Let's pray together.